You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. We are in our Journey to God series, and in this series, we are talking about the songs of ascent, and these are songs that God's people have been uh, singing for thousands of years as they made their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and they would make these pilgrimages uh, particularly three different times a year for festivals, and each festival would celebrate and help God's people remember uh, big benchmark events, mile marker events in the history of of God's people. And so along the way, they would sing these psalms, and these psalms would sort of help prepare them for being in the presence of the Lord and going to worship God in the house of God. And so the song that we're going to get into today is going to help us unpack and learn a little bit about joy. I don't know if y'all are with me, but um, this is a year that could stand a little more joy. Right? It's been a bit of a weird year. And joy is probably not something that this year is often described as, as being a joy-filled year. Maybe for some people, but in, in general, I think it's been a little bit, uh, not so much. And so we're going to dig in and talk about joy. But before we do, I need to help us understand some things that joy isn't because joy, I think, is one of those words that in our world uh, often gets misunderstood. And if we misunderstand what joy is and what it isn't, then it can lead to some confusion and frustration. And so it's important that we unpack a little bit about what joy isn't. And first of all, I just want everybody to know that joy, for our purposes today, while we're talking about this, joy is not the same thing as happiness. Joy is not the same thing as happiness. And in a couple of weeks, Gary Hopkins is going to be with us, and he's going to be unpacking the stop on the journey that talks about happiness and the psalm that gets into really diving into understanding happiness. But joy and happiness are both good. They're just different. You see, happiness is a more... Um, uh, responsive emotion. It's a result of our external circumstances and most of the time, much more temporary. Joy, on the other hand, is what God gives. It's not so much dependent on our circumstances. Certainly that plays a part, but it's not the same as uh, happiness is. And joy is something also that is not required to be a true disciple. Now, Let me help you understand that a little bit because that can sound a little bit weird. Like, wait a minute, I thought joy was one of the fruits of the spirits. So are you saying that disciples don't have joy? Nope, not saying that. What I'm saying is it's not like a prerequisite. And when people uh, who are coming into the faith or are young in the faith in particular, and they begin this journey to God, and they begin this Christian walk, they sometimes can wrestle with feelings of uh, frustration or doubt or wondering if they're doing it right. And sometimes that's rooted in this idea that they're just not walking around happy and smiling and full of joy all the time. And so they start to think, like, maybe I'm not really a good Christian. Maybe I'm not doing it right because I don't have this massive feeling of joy all the time. And so, so what I'm getting at is that joy is not like a requirement to be a true disciple of Jesus. Joy, on the other hand, is a consequence. It, it's born out of abiding in Christ. 
It's, it's a result of following God, sticking tight with God. And as we stick tight with God, Paul says that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. When we stick tight with the Lord and we're walking with God uh, frequently and often and long term, joy is a gift from the Spirit. It, it wells up in us. It's not something that we necessarily manufacture or try to work up. So it's a gift from God. So it, just to kind of help give us a framework for sort of what joy isn't, to, to help dispel a little bit of the difference between joy and happiness. And again, I don't want to step on Gary's toes in a couple of weeks. He's going to unpack happiness. But, but joy comes from abiding with Christ. It's a gift from God. And so as we get into this psalm this morning, kind of have that in the back of your mind. All right, so we're going to do Psalm 126. It's going to be in your notes or up here on the screens. But let's look through the whole psalm, and then we're going to kind of unpack it a little bit this morning. It goes like this. When the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter, and we sang for joy. And the other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. Yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. So this psalm helps us learn something about joy, that joy has a past, a present, and a future. In in the middle of the psalm is verse 3. It says that, yes, the Lord has done amazing things for us. What joy. And so the psalmist is talking about, like, today I can I can say as a statement today in the present, God has done amazing things for us, and with it comes this great joy. And before that, in the psalm, the verses before it talk about history, what happened in the past, and and the rest of the psalm points to an expectant future. It's not a spurt of feelings that kind of pop on if the weather's nice or if your team scores. That's, That's not joy, the way we're talking about joy in the scriptures. The beginning of the psalm alludes to what happened in the past. And so here's what's pretty cool is there's just a few words But with those words come this huge onslaught of memories. They tap into this history that joy has for God's people, that that God gave them through those events. When God brought his people back from exile, it says that, uh, that we laughed, we sang for joy, we were the talk of all the nations. God did amazing things. And you know, the Bible, as you're fully aware, is full of stories of God doing amazing things for his people, um, things that resulted in great joy, um, joy that could be found again and again merely by going back to those memories. I think about joy in the sense like, like as it's a gift from God, it's almost like a giant deposit that he makes in your bank account, this deposit of joy that you can draw on later. You can go back and draw out of that huge deposit that God makes at different times in your life. And the psalmist says, it seemed like a dream. I love that imagery. When he looks back on the circumstances and the things that God did, he says, it seems like a dream. It was too good to be true. Like, under the circumstances, it seemed like there's no way it could have worked out the way it did. But somehow... 
These are the sort of things that cause us to sing songs like, God can move the mountains and I believe he'll do it again. That we can sing a song like that with expectation. The joy has a future. It, and he goes on to, to say that he didn't think there was any way it could ever happen, but it did. And, and those are the kind of memories that we nurture. Those are the kind of things that God calls his people to reflect on. That's why they make the pilgrimages. That's why they sing the songs. Is, is God wants to point his people back to the times where he has made huge deposits for them in the joy tank, if you will. And I think probably if we went around the room, a lot of people in here will have stories that are stories that are like the, I couldn't believe it. I, I, if I tried to tell you how it all happened, like you would never believe it. it. Like you have some of those, it was too good to be true stories. Like, like for you and the story and the circumstances, you know that God intervened, that God showed up, that God rescued, that God said enough was enough and got in the middle of something. And as you look back on those stories, you can sort of look back on them like the psalmist and sort of sync up with them going like, it, it does, it feels like a dream looking back on those stories. And yet you can look back on them and draw out on the history that God gave you with that joy at those times. And so I know probably a lot of us have those kinds of stories. Um, I have personally a lot of those stories where I look back and it feels a little bit like a dream. It feels a little bit like too good to be true stories. And there's several that come to mind, but there's always in my life one anchor story for me that has is just my go-to God showed up it felt like a dream. When I look back on this story, it seems like I'm like looking back on someone else's life because God did such an amazing thing in such a horrible, painful, terrible time where things were so hard for so long. And, and it's like, for me, it's like an out of Egypt story. And I don't know if some of you have an out-of-Egypt story where it's the story that God calls you back to when things are rough, when things are hard. God's like, yeah, but remember? Right? Remember your out-of-Egypt story. And for me, uh, I want to share one of these stories with you because I think it's powerful that we hear stories of how God intervened and how God worked. I also think that it's easy to read God's word and, and look at how God rescued people from Egypt and redeemed them and, and then sent them on pilgrimages to remember and sing songs about it and say that was great, but that was way, 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 way back then. What does it look like when God intervenes like that today? And sometimes we don't hear some of those stories amongst each other. And so I want to share a story and I, I, I want to help you come along on this journey with me and experience some of the joy that I experienced and try and share it with you. But I also want to help give you permission that you're at a church where you get to share these kind of stories. That you say in your home groups and in your coffee meetings and when you're hanging out with people, you say this is a place where you get to tell your stories that are your out of Egypt stories. We don't just gloss over and try and talk about the weather and the Seahawks or how the Cougars are doing. Like we talk about real stuff. So the story I'm about to tell you is, um, it's, it's the best 
one of the best stories of my life. It's also one of the hardest stories of my life. Um, Thursday night's the first time I ever told it at a church. Like uh, people that know me know the story. Um, it's not something that I'm super excited to talk about. I, I'm super excited about what God did. It's just a hard story to tell because it has a lot, a lot of hard memories attached to it and a lot of pain and heartache. Um, so back in 1999, well, let me re- let me rewind. This is the other part of why this is a hard story to tell is because um, a lot of people in here know me for who you know me for in Pullman, and I like that. I mean, I have a pretty good reputation here. And I like that you don't know the old me and some of my stuff. And so sharing this story has to let you uh, open the curtain into some of the long time ago me. And it's hard. So uh, a lot of you probably don't know, I was married right out of high school. And uh, I was young, uh, uh, wasn't walking with the Lord. Um, so about three years into that and two kids later, it blew up and fell apart. And there's all kinds of stuff with that, as you could imagine. We naively thought that you could just say, hey, we'll just share custody. And that'll be enough. Like, we'll just agree, right? That doesn't work. Um, and that we were going to uh, move back uh, to the Idaho area. I had moved us to uh, Atlanta, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta, from Bonners Ferry, Idaho. Um, because when you grow up in a small town, you just really want to leave a lot of people. And I was one of those people that really wanted to leave. I wanted to try and prove myself and make a career and blah, 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 all that stuff. And so here we are in Georgia, divorced, and uh, two little babies. And uh, we had agreed we are going to move back to the Coeur d'Alene, Spokane area because that was closer to home and all that stuff. And so I left there with my kids and started life as a single dad. And... Through the course of the next couple of years, or year in particular, it became apparent that um, she wasn't actually going to come back. It looked like she was going to stay there, so we tried to start navigating the whole long-distance visitation stuff with little babies, which was really, really difficult all in of itself. Um, and after about the second time or so of that, um, she had now... Uh, gotten together with another guy. They were working about getting married and there's all this stuff going on, right? I don't know if you guys realize this, but almost everybody in this room has either personally lived this type of story or knows somebody really close or grew up in this type of story. This stuff is hard and way too common and all the consequences of it. And so I took the kids back down for a visitation to go and visit with her, flying them all the way back down to Georgia, return home, go back to go pick them up, and they won't release the kids. They wouldn't return them. They wouldn't give them back. Get in court stuff, get in lawyer stuff. We start getting into all that battle, and it starts to become a huge deal. Well, it, it snowballed out of control. I'm in Spokane working. My kids are 3,000 miles away. I can't get them on the phone. They blocked my phone calls. They wouldn't take anything. I had no family or connections there. It was like desperation calling police to intervene. And then the new guy gets on the phone and gets involved. And I would make phone calls and call, and he would tell me and make horrible threats to me about, you don't understand, you're 3,000 miles away. Your daughter, who, mind you, is three, is just three feet around the corner. 
what do you think you're going to do? That was the nicest thing he ever said. I got all this stuff recorded. They're horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. This stretches on. I go to get a lawyer and they say, you can't get a lawyer unless you're paid up on child support. I'm like, I've never missed a payment. Like I can prove to you. And they say, well, you wrote the kids' names on it. It didn't say child support because I was young and dumb and prideful and ignorant. And I didn't want to write a check to her. So I wrote my kids' names on it and it didn't say child support. So I paid almost a year's worth of child support again. And busted our butts to get that caught up and, and we paid that again. And then the lawyer says, okay, well, here's the deal. Um, we, we think we can get a case. We think we can get a, a hearing before the judge. And here's all the stuff that has to happen. This is all going throughout, uh, 1999. And this whole year I'm praying and I don't know why, but I just felt this strong conviction that, um, that it was that, that I just needed to ask God specifically that I needed to have my kids by the end of the year. And I'm like, I just, my heart cannot take it to not see them by the end of the year, to not have them back, like somehow to have resolution to this. Like it was destroying me. Try and hold down a job when that's going on every night and every day. It's just super, super painful stuff. And, And so I get this lawyer and she gets me uh, he helps me get sorted and get figured out and we get a court date and it's in the middle of December, 1999. It's gone on for almost a year. I had almost, it's been almost a year since I'd seen my kids in person and barely had a conversation with them on the phone at this point. Long before FaceTime and all that stuff. So I get down there. The stuff has to be held in Georgia because that's where they that's where they were at and that's where the divorce was. So I fly to Georgia, hire a Georgia lawyer, get in all the stuff, and she tells me I need to give you some details. I need to give you some. Uh, I need to help you be prepared up front. Here's the deal: we can only get a temporary custody hearing, and it's it's sort of it's not what we were shooting for, but this is just for temporary custody, and. With that, I need to help you be prepared for a little reality is that a judge rarely overturns custody based on a temporary hearing. And on top of that, this judge rarely gives custody to the dad in in all kinds of circumstances. And on top of that, here's the icing on the cake. Here's something I need you to really be ready for. The odds of you getting Custody turned over to you in a temporary hearing to you as a dad and then him letting you leave the state with them are almost impossible. And she's like, so I just, I need you to be prepared. It's my job to just be honest with you. And I'm like, whew. I walked out of her office, went and sat in my rental car outside, bawled my eyes out, punched the steering wheel, dented the roof, like went hog wild, mad, frustrated, hurting, and started praying. Just asking God to intervene. And so we go to court, we do all this stuff. It's the first time I've ever been in court for anything in my life. I'm super nervous. It was very intimidating. It's long. There's a zillion questions, all kinds of stuff. And I have to lay all my cards on the table, all my recordings, all the stuff, any evidence I had, any reason for why I should have custody of them. I had to lay it all out on the table. And I had got to visit with my kids 
during the court thing, the judge had ordered that uh, I get visitation. And so here I'm praying and praying, and we're doing this court thing, and it's several days long, and then it's over, and I have the kids still, and the, it's coming up to Christmas break, and the lawyer's like, we're trying to get him to rule on it before Christmas break, because I had to leave, and I'm hoping to take him home with me, and I had to leave and go back to Spokane. And uh, the, the time comes, and, he, and I get the word from her that says, hey, he's gone on break, and he's not going to rule until after Christmas break, so there's no ruling. And so I had to take the kids back. to what no parent would ever in their right mind take their kids back to. And I had to get on a plane and go back to work. I get back to Coeur d'Alene, and I'm working. And Monday, after Christmas, December 28th, I get a phone call from my lawyer. And my lawyer says, hey, I, I, all I got is a friend. Uh, the clerk of courts called me. <laughs> And she said, it, it's good, but you got to get to the courthouse. She goes, I don't even know the news yet, but she was just ecstatic. This was the most amazing woman. She's like, you, you just hang by the phone. Don't go anywhere. I'll call you right back. And she went to the courthouse, and she got the thing, and she's reading the papers, and she goes, I haven't even read these. I'm just going to read it to you out loud. And she goes, first of all, I just want you to know we won. Like, I can't even believe this. We won. And she's just in tears reading this to me on the phone. And she goes, not only did we win, you're going to get custody. She goes, but let me read. Oh, oh, and he ordered that she pays you child support. Oh, and he ordered that she's not allowed to have the kids visit unless she has a home with them. And there's not anyone else there that's not a biological relative because all the stuff that had happened. And he put in all of these parameters that were just above and beyond anything I could have ever hoped for or dreamed for to protect the kids and help me be the dad that could protect his kids. And I'm like, there's only one thing I really want to know is when. When, right? I don't know if you guys know in 1999 how many days there were in December, but it was 31. For a year, I had been praying and asking God to somehow make a way that I could have my kids by the end of the year. She gets to the thing and she says, all this takes into effect December 31st at noon. You get custody. And I just like melt, right? I'm like, whew, 12 hours to spare. Now I'm in Idaho. It's 3,000-something miles to Atlanta, Georgia. I have a giant Dodge truck with a 440 because I'm a dumb redneck guy from Bonner's Ferry. And that's real practical, right? That's not going to be a good Georgia rig. My mom, when the PT Cruisers had just come out, they were brand new, and everybody thought those were cool. Well, some people thought they were cool. Uh, she had just bought a brand new car, had like 100 miles on it. I'm like, Mom, can I borrow your car? And I borrowed her car. And I did what I would highly advise no one to ever do. I left Coeur d'Alene on December 28th that night. And I drove 36 hours with no sleep and no stopping. And no, I drove on a tank full of joy that was so full. I pity the fool that talked to me along the way. I was so excited. And I picked my kids up to the minute, and I've never let them go since. Now I have granddaughter, 
They're doing awesome. It's been amazing getting to be their dad. It's, and, and it was just a hard, hard road to start. And, and for me, that is a story where it's so easy for us to read this psalm and to go like the psalmist is saying, look what God did when he brought his people out of exile. Like they had been kicked out of their country, cast out, stolen as slaves, and somehow God made a way for them to come back. And the psalmist says, look how amazing it was when God brought his people out of exile. He returned them. We jumped for joy. We laughed. We cried. Like it was so beautiful. And we read that now, and we don't have that emotional attachment to what would it have been like to have a relative who was stolen as a slave and you thought you would never see again somehow got returned home home like that kind of joy and these are the stories that that the kind of things that help us be reminded that God wants us to remember to remember those stories when he rescued us out of Egypt returned us from exile when he stepped into the middle of our messes and our hardships whether they were done upon us or we did them ourselves and he stepped in the middle and he intervened He rescued, he repaired, he restored. He revealed who he is and what he cares about. And when he, and when he does that, it's like with it comes these deposits of joy. It's something way deeper than happiness. It's something that 25 years later, my son turns 25 tomorrow. 25 years later, I can tap into that and I can feel the same emotions and the same joy and the same excitement that I did the day I drove to Georgia. Joy has a history, but joy also has a future. The thing that's cool about the psalm is it also points to this expectant future that, that ahead we can look for the same God to intervene and intercede and show up in the same ways in the future. And so even in the midst of our circumstances, we can look ahead and expect that God will make more joy deposits down the road. In the rest of that psalm, it talks about in certain, uh, uh, verse is the word I'm looking for. Uh, verse 4, it says, uh, Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. Y- you see, the desert is dry and it's vast, and it's parched, and these stream beds, they lie cracked and dry and baked in the sun, and yet when the rains come, that soil just softens so quick, and life springs. Unexpectedly fast, it turns around. And our lives can be like that, drought-stricken, and then just suddenly, after long years of waiting, everything's interrupted by God's grace. The last part of the psalm points to this future joy. It says that those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. And you'll know, living in this country, there's no farmer that doesn't plant without an expectation of a harvest. No matter what the winter has been like, no matter what the fall was like, no matter how much rain there was or how hot it was or how cold it was, We sow with an expectation of a harvest. And that's the thing is we can learn from this psalm and from Israel's history and look back on our own history and we can be reminded that all the suffering and pain and emptiness and disappointment, all of that stuff is seed. 
And God's pointing us to just sow it into him. We sow it into God. Like we just keep giving things to God. We keep just turning it over to him. Like this is out of my control. This is, this is painful. This is hard. This is hit my knees, punch the roof of the car and ask God for help. Sometimes it's a gentle throwing the seed to the, you know, in the soil. It's like, oh, this is a beautiful day. I'm just sowing seed. Other times I'm cramming it through the roof of the car. Pleading for God to intervene, like somehow, some way, grow something good from this. And we can have that expectation that he will. A lot of people try to find joy in other ways, right? Rather than taking your suffering and pain to the Lord, we try to find it in other ways. We try to just avoid pain and suffering altogether. It's like, if I could just not feel anything, then I won't feel pain. And so we try to numb and cope and, and avoid feeling negative things, thinking negative things in all sorts of ways, some fairly benign, some super unhealthy. They try to get rid of security by, uh, or the insecurity by eliminating risks. You know, like if I just depersonalize relationships, keep everybody at a distance, I won't ever be disappointed. I won't ever have to feel any bad feelings. Nobody will let me down if I don't ever let them have any of me to let down. And then they try to lessen the boredom of that kind of life by buying joy, taking vacations, entertainment, toys, campers and quads and cabins and stuff. And those are the nice ways of looking for joy. And then there's all the unhealthy stuff that people do. The thing is, though, joy isn't found in escaping from boredom. It's found when we dive headfirst into a faith that is all about following Christ. Like when when we commit to just jump on this path, this journey to God and to get on this path and to put one foot in front of the other and to start just seeking out in faith that there is a better way and that it is in Christ and that we don't know what the future holds. We don't know exactly how it's all going to work out, but we trust that if we put everything we've got into knowing who Jesus is and learning how to get to know him and follow him, that, that if in faith we walk that path, There's this expectation that no matter how hard our circumstances are, no matter how deep the valleys are, we have a God who can rescue and redeem and bring joy. God's book is full of stories of him coming through. My life is full of hard stories and crazy stuff, and so many stories of God coming through. So as we finish this morning, I just wanted to give us some questions to kind of chew on. We do these from time to time. We we do questions to kind of wrap up the message. And the idea here is that you guys are in uh, relationship with other people. You're in home groups. You're in, uh, like uh, Daisy said, there's a women's group, uh, women's home group starting up. And so you're in a women's home group or you're just in a regular home group or you're in like a, a one-on-one Bible, you know, like a one-on-one connection with somebody. 
and that you're digging into what we're learning and actually talking about it and wrestling with it and discussing it and then talking about how do you actually do it rather than just learn about it. And so these are these questions are intended to help you kind of to do that with your peeps. So the first one is this, what is one of your out of Egypt stories where God showed up and gave you joy? I hope this morning you've got stories that were coming to mind as I was talking through the through mine. Uh, how are you remembering and passing down those stories? Does anybody know? Have you ever shared it? How about uh, when it comes to hard things in your life like pain and suffering and sorrow and hopelessness, are you sowing those things into God like a farmer planting in hopes of a harvest? Are you just hanging on to that going like, nope, this is my burden to bear. This is on me. This is my stuff. I'll, I'll just grind it out. I'll tough it out. Or are you actually taking that like seed and giving it to God and saying, I don't know how you're going to do it, but I sure would love flowers instead of this hard stuff. The last one is, if you don't know how to do some of these things, who are you going to reach out to for help? I know we all know it, but knowing it and doing it are different things. You can't just come here on a Sunday morning and listen and leave and expect to be changed a whole bunch. Transformation comes from following and applying what you're learning and talking it through out loud and being in relationship with other people. And God works in us through other people and his spirit. And so if you're here and you're not plugged in and wrestling with what does it mean to be a Christian and, and living out your faith with community and friends, then today's the day to make a change. Right on your card. I don't know how to do that. I need help. I need friends. Right? Right on your, like, I need community. I need a group. I need somebody. I don't want to do this solo thing anymore. So let's finish with communion this morning, okay? If you're new with us, every week at Real Life, we take communion together. And we do that so that, so that every week we get an opportunity to reflect and remember what Christ did for us. The, the fact that we have uh, Jesus to follow. When we say, put your feet on the path and, and follow after Jesus, it's because Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Like, there is no way to have a relationship with God and to be right with God apart from putting our faith in Jesus and following Jesus. It's not just a believe in him because you think he's a true historical figure. It's a actually follow him kind of faith. And we can do that because he went before us. Not only did he make a way, but he walked the path ahead of us. And so we have a guide that's worthy of following. He's been where we've been and felt what we felt. So every week we get together and we take communion. And we remember that the body of Christ was given for us. And we take that, the bread as we remember the body. And the cup represents the blood of Christ that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we take the cup, we're thankful for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's drink. Well, let's pray. Lord, you are such a good God. 
We thank you so much for the amazing intervention. Whether it was Israel drawn out of Egypt miraculously through the Red Sea or, or gathering up exiled people from all around the lands around and returning them home, giving them freedom, or whether it's the things you've done in our own lives, Lord, to, just a miraculous intervention where you found us where we were, you intervened. God, this week, help us to recall to mind the stories where we think about you as a rescuer, as a redeemer, as a miracle worker. Help us share those stories with each other and spur each other on. Just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.